the subtlety of constructing trails like that with actually like how difficult it actually is to do really, really well is something that is pushing me forward now as I get older and I need to sit at a machine more than roll rocks uphill all day. But more than the construction process, it's what they do for our communities. Accessible trails to me are the future of getting people out, linking our communities together. Access, it's the multi-generational trail where you get kids who are learning how to ride their bikes and having their grandparents be able to get out there. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 123 features Jed Talbot. Jed is the founder and owner of OBP Trailworks based out of Maine. Jed is also a former president of the Professional Trail Builders Association and was a traveling instructor for the SCA for nearly two decades. Jed shares a lot of stories from his many years on the road, including some stories behind the trail building that he's been involved with in the Patagonia region of Argentina. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. One of my favorite articles of clothing this winter, and now spring, has been the Foley Zipper Hoodie from Kettle Mountain Apparel. This zipper hoodie is as functional as they come, yet offers the comfort of your favorite stuffed animal as a child. The people behind Kettle Mountain Apparel are mountain bikers, hikers, trail runners, and travelers. You can purchase the Foley Zipper Hoodie and all the other fine Kettle Mountain Apparel at ketlmtn.com backslash josh, or hit the link in the show notes and you'll be supporting the Trail Effect podcast in the process. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped more people find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. Now on to the Trail Effect with Jed Talbot. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Jed Talbot. Jed is the owner of Off the Beaten Path Trails, aka ABP Trailworks. How's it going today, Jed? Good. It's OBP Trailworks, but we're all good OBP. on that. <laughs> uh, I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you doing, Josh? I'm doing really good. All right. You are kind of a prolific legend within the trail building world. You've been doing it for multiple decades now. And I don't mean that in a way to age you, but I am saying that in a way of like, you have a lot of experience and you know, you, you've grown up in Maine, you've done a lot in Maine, but you've also been literally around the world. Let's kind of hear about your backstory as to what, you know, both growing up in Maine and what got you into the world of trail building. Sure. And I don't mind you dating me <laughs> at all. My, my, my back tells the story of the years I've spent building trails. So I don't mind feeling a little bit old. Yeah, I grew up in, you know, rural Maine, 
pretty much everywhere in Maine's fairly rural. Um, splitting my time between sort of living on the the banks of the Cathans River, which is a tidal river that opens up into Mary Meeting Bay in the mid coast region of Maine during most of the year. But my father's side of the family is from a little bit inland. I come from farming stock for generations up in Turner. And that's where my business is still located and my family still lives. And that's about an hour from where I currently live, which is still in the mid coast region. So I bounce around between would spend our summers in Turner and I, I went to school the rest of the year was was on the mid coast. And so, you know, it was either rolling agricultural hills or, or, uh, you know, banging around on the riverbanks and, and uh, paddling, you know, little dinghies out into the into the bay and getting into trouble as a kid out on the out on the water so that's kind of how i grew up i was always outside you know from from can to can't used to say like from from when you you can see to when you can't see coming in for occasional breaks for food and uh and heading back out again you know and uh i kind of always grew up working with my hands you know my my dad self-employed he instilled that value in me as well. So I was always helping him out. One of my first jobs I remember was uh, cleaning bricks for him. He did rest um, among other things, does restoration carpentry. And uh, he had, he dropped me off and my sister, my older sister uh, at this old house in the middle of the woods where we would carry bricks out from this fallen down chimney and take little chipping hammers and chip off all the old lime mortar and stack them up so we could reuse them. And it's, you know, not that much different than what I'm doing now. Reusing materials, recycling materials, natural materials, and banging on stuff with hammers. Um, so it's kind of the way that I've always kind of grown up. Let's go into how you landed in the upper Midwest for college. Because when I was doing a little bit of research, I found that one to be interesting, how you landed at Carleton College, which is kind of in South, I, I believe it's South of Minneapolis, St. Paul. It is. Yep. About maybe 35, 40 miles South of the Twin Cities. Yeah, as I think is probably normal for for many teenagers with a certain level of angst. You know, I love Maine now, but was convinced growing up that I was in the most backwards place that existed and just wanted to see something new. So every college I applied to was out of state and uh and I I wanted to go to California. I wanted to get as far away as I could and uh went out to Carleton, which I, my sister told me about it. I'd never heard of the school. A lot of people don't know about it and went out there being somewhat skeptical of the Midwest, knowing nothing about it. But as an Easterner, I'm supposed to be skeptical of most things and just love the people. Like as soon as I went there, I was like, people here are amazing. Not only just the sort of the super friendly, you know, outgoing personalities that are so prevalent in the Midwest, but just the folks that go to that particular school. Um, I was just totally drawn in with every single person I met. And actually, when I was there as a prospective student, the people I connected with the most were on this the Arboretum Restoration Crew. There's a big arboretum attached to the campus as slash trail crew. Uh, and they took care of the trails and uh, doing sort of conservation restoration projects. And those are the people I absolutely connected with when I visited there and knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to that school. As soon as I was accepted, I actually wrote a letter to the school saying, can my work study be uh, in the Arboretum? And so I didn't know what I wanted to study, but I knew what I wanted to do when I was there. And that was, you know, digging the dirt out in the Arb and work on the trails. And so that was my first introduction to trails. 
and did a lot. It was mostly conservation work, not so much hardcore trail work. It was much more. It's a lot of uh, black soil, oak savanna restoration, going out to native prairies, which of which there are very, very few in Minnesota. But mostly, most of them are along railroad beds. Actually, one of the only places that haven't been touched by the plow in the Midwest, in areas where the railroads predated, you know, some of the agricultural work and collecting native prairie seeds, replanting. And so it it really kind of lit a fire under me for that sort of conservation work and then got a little bit of uh, a feeling of what it's like to to build trails at that same time. With that, you know, and we're kind of going back and forth in email, you had mentioned that you uh, lived out of your truck for a couple of years before heading back east. I did. I did. I didn't really know what I wanted to do after school. I figured I'd be a teacher. My My whole family are teachers. You know, both my parents taught, both my sisters teach, you know, aunts and uncles, grandmother, grandfather. So I come from that. I I figured I'd be an educator of some sort, Uh, but I really just wanted to work with my hands. Happily, I get to do both now, but I didn't know what I was doing when I I graduated. Actually, for lack of any better ideas, I, I got on my mountain bike and biked home from Minnesota back to Maine up through Canada on my old GT Karakorum because... I didn't know what else to do and uh, gave me a lot of time to think. And, uh, and before I started living in my truck, I actually did do a 11 month AmeriCorps SCA program that was split between environmental education and trail work. Um, and we can talk about that if you'd like, but that really launched me knowing I wanted to do trails, but even directly after that program, I basically got in my truck, you know, well, that program, I guess we could talk about it a little bit now because it is sort of what set my trajectory for traveling around and, and, and building trail and leading crews for SCA as I, as I lived in my truck. That was, it was a pretty awesome program. It's still going on. Um, a residential 11 month long program where you work, teach environmental education in the schools. You learn a lot about different curriculum development. And then in the uh, spring, summer and, and fall, you build trails in different state parks and areas around mine was in New Hampshire, set in New Hampshire. So all over New Hampshire and the way that they teach uh, trail skills there is, is you initially go through a week long training, an SCA work skills program, which I ended up teaching being one of the instructors to teach those trainings for about 14 years later in life. But taking that week was of, of conservation based skills was amazing as a participant. You know, the first day we kind of, we we went out, we learned about tread and drainage work, you know, hydraulics, how water moves across the landscape, get the water out of the trail or the trail out of the water, you know, and sort of introduction to this is this is the way trails and water interact and learning about tread hardening, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. The next day we built bog bridges. And so we're using chainsaws, which I grew up using anyway, poorly, you know, um, and learned all the things I didn't, I was doing incorrectly, you know, um, by the time I was in my early twenties, but, uh, we were learning timber notches, saddle notches, you know, um, dropping trees, debarking and building stuff out of these trees that we're following. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is even better than, you know, tread and drainage work. And then the next day we had uh rock work and well 
rolling rocks through the mud, trying to build water bars at the time on a really steep trail. And it was extremely frustrating. And, uh, and I was like, this is absolutely what I want to do. And then the next day we, we learned about rigging. Um, and I used a grip hoist for the first time and we started hauling stuff around. And I was like, all of a sudden, like this sciencey part of my brain and that, that, the sort of dormant, you know, math side of my brain woke up and was like, wow, this is amazing. Like I can incorporate like all elements of like being excited, you know, to problem solve, have to use some science and, and hard skills. Uh, and, and then also have this sort of eye to, to naturalistically craft and incorporate these structures into the environment. I'm like, this is, I'm going to do this. You know, this is what I'm going to do. Thinking there's no jobs to do that anywhere at the time, which I think is what a lot of people thought. This is in 1998 and uh, decided that's what I want to do. But SCA was the only organization that I knew of that was doing that type of stuff. And so after that program ended, I got in my truck and well, I, I saved a little bit of money because I, I started working again because you don't make any money at those programs. You get a living stipend and that's it. Um, helps pay off some student loans with an AmeriCorps education award. But then, you know, so spent a couple buckle down for a couple months to to save up money and jumped in my truck, took off and basically just traveled around the country, climbing, biking, hiking and picking up little landscaping jobs where I needed to and then leading crews for SCA when I had an opportunity to do that. So I, I did that for a few years and it was amazing. Most of my time was spent out west, um, a lot of it in California. And uh, would just, you know, that feeling of, of waking up and not knowing where you're going to sleep that night was, was pretty amazing and, and sparked that element in me that I was like, okay, I would love to be outside for work. I'd love to travel for work. And, and this is kind of, um, if I can make a living doing that, if I could find a way, that's absolutely what I'm going to do. Let's back up a little bit for yeah. those that might not be familiar with what the SCA is and kind of, and I, I think most people do know what the SCA is, or at least that model. But let's break down what that model is, because we're going to bring that back around with the rest of the conversation. Absolutely. I'd love to, because SCA is an organization that's, that's near and dear to my heart, obviously. It's how I got started in this world. But I also feel like their, um, their importance and relevance to the industry and the element of trail-based education and mentorship and um, the lineage of knowledge that goes all the way back to the CCC is really uh, overlooked a lot of times in a lot of the conversations we have about trails. So SCA was, as an organization, stands for Student Conservation Association. Uh, it was an organization that was conceived in the at least as an idea in the early 50s, I believe, uh, by a, an amazing woman named Liz Titus Putnam um, when she was a student at Vassar College. And she had this idea of, of bringing back basically the, the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, in a different way. Um, the CCC, which I'm sure also most of viewers are uh, familiar with to a degree, was a federally funded program um that ran from i think 1933 to 42 ish almost 10 years during the great depression uh it was basically there were there were over 
3 million men only, unfortunately, but 3 million men involved in, in conservation projects, uh, road building, trails, pavilions, um, campgrounds all across the country. And uh, they ended up incorporating a lot of really highly skilled artisans, timber framers, you know, masons, surveyors, road engineers, and then teaching many, many other men how to do those trades. And we see their work all over the place. Um, still, you know, a lot of picnic pavilions we see that you know, those timber framed picnic pavilions with huge stone, you know, fireplaces and stone paving around that we see in state parks all over the country. A lot of that's old CCC work, amazing stuff. A lot of the trails that we see, a lot of old staircases that are in the middle of the woods on trails that are have long been left derelict where CCC work. But that was disbanded in, in like I said, I think 1942 because the need for uh, were soldiers for uh, to fight in World War II. So, you know, 10 plus years later, Liz, as a um, student, at, at Vassar, it's like, okay, let's, let's see if we can reinvigorate a program similar to this to engage our youth to keep this knowledge around and to provide a new generation of conservation leaders doing this type of work on our public lands. So it took a few years. Um, she got some momentum. I think it was the late 50s, maybe 1957 or so, where they launched their first program um, somewhere in that range uh, out west. And the SCA started their their tagline, I believe, still is changing lives through service to nature, which I think is a pretty awesome tagline um, because they are doing that. They've continued to do that. So they have all kinds of programs now, residential programs, um, urban programs, programs uh, on reservations with indigenous cultures and, and high school programs was their hallmark for a long time. Um, so like taking high school kids out for the summer. And in, into awesome, beautiful places and, and, and playing in the dirt. And then they've got these residential programs of which I was a part that started my interest in this. And that was, you know, an 11 month long programs. Uh, they also have the, a lot of, they're known for their internships. Oftentimes you'll see an SCA intern staffing, a um, you know, a, a gate or an entrance gate to a park, um, or a visitor center, or you'll see them out collecting data or see native seeds or, or, um, you know, doing desert restoration or something like that as part of a um, federal or municipal program. So they do a ton of stuff. So that's kind of the broad brushstrokes of SCA. I haven't worked for the organization for a while now. Um, and so I'm not as uh, closely tied into what they're doing. But I think one of the, to get back at, if you don't mind me rambling, Josh, <laughs> to get back at the idea of how they've helped the, the skills of um you know traditional trail work skills stay in the forefront um more than we might think that they did they had you know we talk about i've heard on your program people talking about uh the imba trail care crew which is an amazing program and like you know ripple effect there's so many people now who are leading the industry as professionals who started as some of those not just the imba trail care uh you know instructors but participants in that program similarly before the imba trail care crew sca had a traveling trail skills program and uh in the 80s that was pretty freaking epic i think um 
And as I understand the history, because I used to like study this stuff and talk to these guys, there was a core group of YCC, which is Youth Conservation Corps, which is a program that was around in the 70s and 80s for a while. Another amazing program that um, is often overlooked in the history of how these skills have stayed um, in our subculture. But YCC and SCA affiliated folks um, in the Pacific Northwest who had learned their skills directly from some of the guys that were in the CCC. And so there's sort of this direct lineage from uh, folks being in the Civilian Conservation Corps and then teaching um, these Youth Conservation Corps leaders and SCA leaders who then became instructors themselves. and. So they decided like they were concerned that sort of traditional conservation skills and trail craft was declining. And so they created this work skills manual that was never officially published in the late seventies. It was geared much more towards Pacific Northwest type work. You know, it was a timber joinery, you know, big bridges, um, you know, rigging and saw work, not so much in the East. At the same time, the same stuff was happening in the in the Northeast a little bit with, I believe it was about the same time that AMC, the Appalachian Mountain Club, was crafting their first uh, trail maintenance and design handbook, or trail building and maintenance manual, I believe that's what it's called, which was more Northeastern-based skills, you know, uh, rock work, little short, a lot of short span bridges. Uh, how to reconstruct fall line trails, stuff like that, stuff that's much more Northeastern specific. So it's happening sort of on both coasts in the in the late 70s and early 80s, where people are actually trying to formalize this stuff into some manuals. The AMC manual is is thought of as, as one of the Bibles, I think, for for folks that are getting into this stuff. And this manual that wasn't actually published that these guys put together is one of the, it basically became SCA's Lightly on the Land eventually, which is another one of those books that um, people carry out into the woods. And, and uh, I know I've, I've studied it. I've worn through a couple of those manuals. I'll put it that way. So this manual and this skills program with SCA um, developed into like the mid 80s. They did their first wilderness work skills program. I think it was in Yellowstone. And it was basically a week long. Like I was describing what I went through. It's, it's basically the same thing a week-long work skills conservation week where each day was a different subject. So it's sort of a station type um, format. So you have different stations, you rotate through each station each day and each, each station teaches you a different skill. Everything's hands-on. You know, the instructors are seen more as facilitators of the experience more than like experts in the field. And the idea is to get people hands-on and and give a certain skill set, but also emphasize how to that this is sort of defining the realms of possibility that you can take these skills into into different environments. You know, take it back to your situation and use this. It's a toolkit that can get catered to any environment. And so that's sort of the the format that they set up for this training. And it's still the format that SCA uses to this day. And, and they they bought this uh, Ford Econoline van and uh, and then another big old um, some sort of van that they used as a field kitchen. Uh, Beluga was the white the name of the the Econoline van. I actually got to see it when it 
sort of uh where it's parked in Seattle years and years later I hadn't moved for probably 20 years when I saw it um it was sort of rotting into the ground but it was a beautiful beautiful thing and these core group of people ran around and taught forest service park service conservation corps state organizations volunteers they just went around and would teach these week long or five day long courses trail skills during the day and the evenings to teach knots and how to rehandle tools how to sharpen tools you know that sort of thing it was very much like a you know 24 7 type experience fully immersive five-day experience in trail skills and you could see how the Ember trail care crew kind of came out of some some of that sort of stuff but the the lineages of those instructors went straight back to the ccc and um then filtered through a lot of the forest service instructors and some of those guys were mentors of my mentors you know um that core group of people one of them was bob burkby who wrote the sca manual you know steve griswold was another who he also wrote a manual that i've only seen once i, I borrowed it and ran to the closest kinkos and and photocopied it i've never seen it in any other place but it's a, it's an awesome awesome trail manual that's catered specifically to like uh sequoia and king's canyon and the techniques used there. Uh, he was one of those guys. Another guy, Carol Vogel. Have you ever heard that name, Carol Vogel, Josh? He he passed away, I want to say maybe 12, 12 years ago or so. But Carol was another one of these instructors who was based out of Seattle and knew how to do everything, but decided to go into business only building trail bridges. So he had a company called Sahale. I believe the they're still in existence on the web, um, S-A-H-A-L-E. And it's just a, last time I looked, it's just a catalog of their trail bridges that they've done, you know, and he traveled the world building only trail bridges, you know, some amazing ones, you know, no hardware, you know, all mortise tenon, you know, doweled bridges, like huge span suspension bridges in very remote areas, really cool stuff. Um, I got the, opportunity to talk to him once and and a couple times and see his shop and that's where I saw Beluga and he basically said yeah I I started thinking about what I want to do in my life and I just wanted to build really cool shit and I was like what's what's the coolest shit you could build a trail bridge so I guess I'm only going to build trail bridges from now on and that was like the sum total of it and uh and that's what he did and he left his legacy that way so there were a bunch of these guys, these amazing, amazing mentors, you know, and, and so the people I learned from were folks that learned from those guys and I got really into it. So I studied trails like a, you know, like it, I was going to college and, um, worked with SCA for the next, you know, I did other things too in the private contracting realm and, and other places, but, but stayed on as a skills instructor for the next 14 years with SCA. And they sent me all over the place and I, you know, was a lead work skills instructor helping put on these, these work skills events, uh, you know, all over um, the country. And it was a, it was a really good way to cross pollinate with all the different geographical regions in the U S the issues that people were seeing on trails, the way that they were handling those, uh, the solutions they were coming up with very site specific things that I had never seen, you know, working in the trying to dig through five feet of duff, you know, outside, you know, 
outside Seattle in the Cascades, so different than, you know, working in the subalpine environment in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, um, or, you know, the red clay soils down in North Carolina. And so like tasting all of that stuff really set me up for, I feel like having an open mind about what it takes to be a comprehensive, good, you know, trail builder. And also like, just gave me a lot of, a lot of stuff for the quiver is pretty great. And also gave me a lot of, a lot of wonderful people to, to learn from and to go back to for resources. Speaking of learning from early on in, in this part of the story about the SCA, you use the words facilitators of the experience instead of the word, instead of the words experts, which clearly they probably were experts. But I think using that choice of words and presenting themselves in that manner probably led to a much better learning experience for the everybody learning these trades. I think so. You know, and that's the same way I I like to look at things. Like I I often use the word facilitation. I feel like I'm trying to facilitate a lot of the situations I'm in. Uh there's actually a funny quote of one of the the chief instructors of that old SCA crew that I just read because I was reading about it. Um this guy Steve Wenstrom, he said when talking about experts, right? He said X is an unknown quantity and spurt is a drip under pressure. We're not experts. And so that idea that that's what we're here to do, like we bring what we have to the table, but if we try to, with a, you know, iron fist, like teach people exactly what they need to do, they're going to get a lot less out of it than allowing, setting up a, a set of parameters and allowing people to grow within those parameters. I was just listening to a podcast this week. Strange, huh? I listen to podcasts <laughs> all the time. <laughs> well, when you're sitting at a desk behind a computer, you have some podcast listening time. And it was an interesting conversation going on about, it was a leadership conversation and the host, or I'm sorry, the guest was talking about potential employees they'd like to have on their staff. And they specifically said, we don't want to hire know-it-alls. We want to hire learn-it-alls. And people that are curious to yeah. life in general and what they're and what they're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's having having that wanting to to gain the skills is more important than feeling like you know the skills. I think it for me, when I'm trying to hire somebody, we also need to get along on the job and off the job. You know, we have a job that's very different than a lot of other occupations where you clock out, you go home, you know, you have a different life. Oftentimes we're, you know, not always, but we're often like on site together, you know, um, day and night. It really helps if we get along. But in that same vein, you know, I would rather teach somebody how to, we do a lot of machinery, machinery based stuff now. Um, I didn't used to, I grew up doing hand tool, using hand tools. And now I, I sit in an excavator a lot of the time. But I would rather train somebody how to use that excavator who knows how to use uh, a rogue hoe really well than try to teach somebody who's really good at running um, equipment and has excavator experience digging ditches how to do an appropriate backslope and full bench construction. I would rather have people come into that. I'd rather have people have the sensitivity. We're kind of reluctant equipment operators in a sense that, and I try to have people run equipment like they're using a hand tool. And that's, I feel like taught more easily if you don't know how to run equipment and you do know how to 
you know, know how to use the business end of a, of a McLeod. That sets us up perfectly for the next topic that I wanted to get into, which is transitioning from the SCA into the world of professional trail building. And we're going to go a couple places with this, but you know, you worked with Peter Jensen and Associates before you founded OBP Trailworks. And one, I want to talk about how that transition was made, but then after we get out of the transition, I want to get into the knowledge share and the continuation of that knowledge share as it pertains today in the world of professional trail building. So let's talk about why you, you know, obviously I think you kind of alluded to the fact that there's not a lot of money in the SCA, you know, and I'm assuming that maybe it was one reason why you, you transitioned into the world of professional trail building, but let's talk about that, that transition into the world of, you know, what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love the SCA, but, and I loved like being, a, I was a, a crew leader for high school crews for a bunch of summers and loved that element of it and the crew leading element, but I really just wanted to work, you know? And so it was always a little bit of a, a tension, internal tension, I guess. And it was, I think in, so that's why I like doing the instruction thing. Cause that, that allowed me a, a slightly different outlet with it. And then in 2001, an opportunity came up with through one of my SCA co-leaders who worked for Stone Mason in Asheville, North Carolina, who also uh, ran a trail company. Frederica Lashley is her name. And she was working on a project with Peter Jensen in North Carolina over the winter or fall to winter. And it was an awesome project, you know, helicopters, you know, high lines flying rock in. We had a, a Peter made this like homemade gin pole derrick, like a type of thing you'd see like in quarries on a massive scale. Like he made a small one that we used hand cranks so we could lift rocks and swing them and move them and pinning into ledge, exciting project. And so I got to jump in on this project and that was really my first introduction to professional contracting. And uh, even though I was working for, not for Peter, but for, for Frederica, I immediately connected with Peter, like immediately. And basically like first week was like, Hey, I will move to wherever you are. And if you are looking for workers, you know, as soon as this project is over and he was like, okay. I'm in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. I'm like, great. That's on my short list of places that I want to move to. And uh, so that's what I did. So, uh, but I was like, I got to tell you, I need some time off in the spring and the summer to continue to work with SCA um, to teach these work skills stuff and, and, you know, these, these conservation skills trainings and, and also to maybe lead a high school crew here and there. And he said, sure, that works for me. And so that started my relationship with Peter, who was, um, I learned a tremendous, still continue to learn a tremendous amount of, of trail building from He's um, he's pioneered so many things. Um, we built, I learned so much about accessible trails and just what is, what is possible. You know, Peter's one of those visionaries who, who just sees things on the landscape that other people don't see. One of my favorite quotes is from, um, Albert Einstein that says, only those that can see the invisible can do the impossible. And, uh, and I feel like that's some of the trail visionaries that we look up to. That's one of the things that sets them apart from other folks. They can see the invisible. And then where everyone else is like, nah, that's not going to go there. They're like, oh, yes, this is a fun challenge. That can go there. And Peter's like that. He's got that mentality. So uh, I've learned a tremendous amount from him. So 
went into a, a number of years working for Peter as an employee, um, then as a subcontractor, then as a business partner. And about the same time, at the same time, I was also working for SCA here and there. Same thing with SCA, we're working uh, as a subcontractor. Some of the, uh, I, I transitioned into working to, for SCA as a subcontractor and started my own company in 2004, but I was still had like one hand in Peter's business and also was working with SCA as a subcontractor. So I was kind of, my transition was very easy, you could say, into the contracting world because I was sort of diversified and uh, Peter had endless awesome projects. And then when I would get a little project, I could do it on my own. And so it was sort of a gradual progression to basically the end of 2009 is when I, um, you know, sort of stopped, did basically only OBP work. This has all been about sharing knowledge and yeah. it's been coming up. I don't know how to, I don't know how to say this without offending someone. <laughs> it's been coming up more recently, both on and off the show Yeah, of people or companies getting into the world of trail building that aren't traditionally trained in trail building. You know, they may have an LLC set up. They may have a background in landscape, landscape work, maybe an excavator, a couple of road codes, some employees they've, you know, but so let's get into like actually sharing that knowledge that has came from the lineage that you've been talking about this whole time to keep the trade of trail building going. And I think that's super important because we're now at a point and we've probably been there for a while, but it's this, we're talking about it more that Trail building is a legit trade. You look at, I look at trail building just like plumbing, just like electrical, just like stone masonry, timber framing, all that stuff, right? And it's important to either work with others as mentors, like the SCA or whatever, wherever you're at geographically, or work for another professional like yourself to really get that trade known to, in your brain and how, to, how it works. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a big topic. <laughs> and as you can tell already, I'm, I'm long-winded. So I'll try not to go on too many tangents, but, and I should just sort of preface this by saying, I'm talking about traditional skills, like these same mentorships, the same stuff happens, is happening in the biking community around the innovations and incredible work that's happening around bike trails. That's, uh, it's very different. And I, I'm just not speaking to it because it's not my world so much, but I think having a mentor is really important. You know, we are seeing a lot of people come into the field and, and it's hard to fault individuals that are trying to jump in with both feet because you could see so many opportunities right now. The recreation industry is exploding and there's just these amazing, exciting projects out there in the public sphere being dangled like these, you know, chocolate covered carrots in front of people that are like, yeah, I could work for somebody who's telling me what to do each day, or I could take that on myself, like that challenge. Like I want to do that, you know? So I don't fault people for trying to jump right in on some of the amazing opportunities that are, uh, that are out there right now. Cause there's honestly more opportunities than there are people ready to do them. But if that happens without, I guess, enough immersion in the industry and having teachers and mentors that, you know, maybe you don't see eye to eye with, but who are still, who you still try to adopt what they're doing for a certain period of time. I think that's really important. Like Peter and I didn't see eye to eye a lot of the time with what, you know, 
we the way we looked at things. And as with many young, headstrong trail dogs, you know, like I usually thought I knew better than him, you know, even though he he had, you know, another 30 years experience on me or whatever. But trying to actualize his vision, do what somebody else tells you to do, even when you think you know better, for not just a, a couple of days or a week, you know, a few seasons, like it instills a degree of humility. It expands your ideas of what, you know, any particular uh the solutions that might that any particular problem might need. You know, it still allows you to see your what you would want to do and keep that in mind. It just gives you a greater degree of personal growth and um, makes you adopt other perspectives than your own. And I think that's really, that's an important process. And just like any sort of apprenticeship journeyman, you know, type program, whether it's you're a timber writer, you know, a stonemason or whatever, um, having that in the trail world is just going to help the the industry and it's going to help every single company if they have that experience to 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 come into the sphere into the industry and be able to be better equipped to take on a variety of solutions you know i guess if i were to offer some unsolicited advice for folks <laughs> who are, are looking to become trail contractors you know to gain as much experience and as many types of trail building as possible you know we're quickly turning in this, the, the field is evolving so quickly. We're starting to use the term trail professional more than trail builder oftentimes because it entails so many different types of skill sets. Uh, there's so many more elements than just dirt digging. And if you want to start a company in order to make money or grab that first big project, maybe don't, you know, you hear so often like, I could just be doing my own thing and making like, x amount more you know and it's that that could very well be doing a disservice to the industry to your clients to the public and to the landscape you know if you're if you're doing it for the for the bottom dollar you're probably not going to be have too much staying power in the space you know if you there, there's so many awesome well-funded projects and those will come if what you everything you do you're doing with passion and integrity you know those projects will come to you if you're doing it for the bottom dollar you you likely won't be doing it for as long as some of the folks that that uh, are approaching it differently. You know, there's there's tons of space in the industry, um, but having some sense of of um, the practices of those around you, the historical practices that have been done, the way things have people have been doing them. Some of the key figures, I, I feel like, is really just helps you settle into uh, being a real, a true, well-rounded trail professional, as well as reaching forward. You know to grabbing all that new technology because we need people doing that as well. We have an interesting dynamic happening within the trail world, which I'm, I'm happy to see. And I'm hoping we can sprinkle people with knowledge like yours into these places. But, you know, universities and trade schools are starting to like really latch on to trail building as a legit trade as well. Yeah. And it's, it's important. I think it's great. I think it's great. It's, and it's, we need a lot more folks going into those uh, programs because one of the issues we're seeing in those programs is that 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 some students aren't finishing multi-year programs because after just a little bit of training, they have so many job offers that they can go right into the field. You know, um, they don't need to stay on because that's we're all hired, all of us, you know, that, that have that have businesses. Uh, everyone's looking for workers. 
So there's, we need a lot more people to be able to balance that and have more impetus for people to stay in, like to, to make it a more competitive field. That's so funny because I've never thought of this analogy before until you just said it, but it's almost like that star baseball or basketball or whatever, insert pro athlete or insert um, amateur athlete into like, I could go to college, I'll spend a year at college and then I'll get drafted by whatever. It's true. It's not, yeah, I think it's an apt analogy. It's the first time that's actually like kind of jumped out of, jumped at me out of my brain that we're now getting into the world of like people leaving school early so they could get into the professional ranks. Yeah. We try to keep our drafting program a little under the radar, but it's out there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to transition into like places you've worked, but I want to actually stay on your company and stay on training. And what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is one of the things you've worked, you were working on, I don't know if it's out yet or not, but you, I think it's coming out. You're the co-author of a U.S. Forest Service manual titled Principles of Backcountry Rigging. Let's talk about this book and the importance of it, because I think that ties in tightly with what we were just talking about before we get into locations that you're also building in. Yeah, for sure. That, I mean, for me, that project is, it's all about safety. It, it stemmed originally from, from running crews um, and honestly, like being scared of what I was seeing. So this is, you know, as I was, as I was getting more experience in the, as a professional contractor, but kind of in that role of working for a boss, but also having other people under me and not knowing how to keep my friends, you know, and, and peers safe. The book itself manual as we, as drafted down might honestly never come out. It's been in the works for over 20 years. It's been a labor of love. Um, it was started by David Michael, who is a longtime U.S. Forest Service trail specialist in California. I worked in Alaska. He's retired to the Ozarks now, actually. Amazing guy. He was also one of the guys who did the, the revisions of the Crosscut Manual um, for the Forest Service. And I think he actually authored the Crosscut Manual. And so David had been working on this, this manual for, for many years by himself, but he still worked for the Forest Service. And I met him in 20, 2005 or six. I just finished a season of working in the John Muir wilderness on, on the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, I was leading, I spent two summers out there. This is like one of those cool SVA programs that people don't really like talk about. It's like, they did so many cool things. We, we were out in the, this is a tangent, but we we're out in the John Muir wilderness. For, I was out there for two months and um, had a small crew with SCA and Forest Service people were building cool rock structures during the week. And on the weekends, this huge group would come out of, of volunteers of like 20, 30 volunteers would hike 10 miles out to us. And we would teach them how to do traditional rock skills for the weekend, cook for them, and then send them back. And we did that every weekend for two summers. Um, it's a really cool program. So I, I just finished doing that and I met, I met David Michael somewhat randomly in, in Lake Tahoe and we talked rigging. He told me about this manual he was building. And then, you know, because I had already started doing research on rigging for the stuff that I was doing, I, you know, I, I told him the books that I had purchased and that sort of stuff that I was looking at. And he liked the fact that I had a, a, a slightly more Eastern perspective. And so he, he brought me into the project. You know, my history with with rigging is one of the guys who's most well known for this stuff is Lester Kenway, who's from Maine. And he was sort of the one of the first guy, one of the first people to bring a grip hoist into the woods for trail work purposes, setting up like a high line with tripods 
where there were trees, uh, basically because he saw that system at a, I think when he was in Alaska, um, at a, for a mining operation, he's like, Oh, we could do that on the trails. So that was like the late seventies. And so everyone around here knows Lester. So I've learned sort of learned from his techniques. Um, he's a, also just a, a legend in the industry. But then when I got into it, I started seeing a lot of unsafe practices. You know, I got one point I got pulled into a belay system. Um, I, I literally thought I was going to lose my fingers for a little while. And so I started doing research on there's a, but got to be a better way to belay. I was a climber. I was like, there's got to be a better way to, to belay these, these rocks down this massive slope. Like we're talking about like slowing rocks down for those that are super familiar with rigging talking about like, uh, like a thousand pound stone that's on a, a block on a cable that's suspended from the trees going down a slope and you're slowing it down with a rope. You know, what's that belay device look like? You know, rock climbing stuff is very inadequate for, for that, for that type of work. You have to incorporate friction, dissipate the heat, you know, but how do you do that? So I started like getting really into trying to figure out how that works best for trails. You know, it turns out the best belay devices are from the arborist world. Everyone uses them now, Porter wraps. No one is using them, you know, in, in 2001. And so that's sort of where it came from. And I started like treating this rigging stuff like it was a PhD dissertation. I, I bought as many books as I could from like marine stevedoring to logging to, you know, crane work to arborist work, search and rescue, climbing, and put, sort of assembling that information in my own head um, and trying to figure out how to make it work for trails. Even though everyone else was doing this too, I was just doing it for my own projects in my, you know, to try to make myself feel safer um, or that I was doing the best I could to keep everybody safe. So when I came on that project with David, we, we tried to assemble what his perspective, my perspective. Um, we brought in another, another guy, uh, John Glenn, who was a longtime volunteer um, out in the Sierra National Forest and crosscut instructor, yeah, amazing individual and also a, an engineer. Brought him in on the project as well. Um, we brought my now wife in on the project to do the illustrations for it. So she's she's literally done, I don't know, 100-something illustrations um, for this book. And then it's just kind of sat there, unfortunately. It's been caught up on uh, collecting dust in the, in the Forest Service offices for decades now, bouncing between rotating staff and different, um, you know, it's it's a very, we, we live in a very litigious, you know, society. and rigging is something that's very nebulous it's hard to have real safety protocols and because trail rigging particular you know brings in stuff from so many different occupations that have their own set of standards we're bringing in a bunch of gear with different standards and we don't have our own standard it makes everyone a little hesitant to say yes this is the absolute best practice and i'll stand behind it and that's the real challenge with rigging which is one of the reasons why i love it so much but at this point, the manual is already up. It should be revised and it hasn't even come out yet. You know, David's retired. John, unfortunately, has passed away in a rigging accident, actually, tragically. But we're still teaching the techniques, you know. For example, at the upcoming, you know, ITS conference, I'll be teaching a, a, a two-day rigging workshop. And I'll be teaching a lot of the stuff that's in that book in a short period of time. The first time I ever saw a grip hoist? It was when Willie Bittner had just moved back to lacrosse or this region. And he was at a, he was like, a, I don't know if it was a career fair, something having to do it at the local technical college. And he was like, essentially showing people that you could actually get a job in, in trail building. 
<laughs> this was like right, probably would have been pretty much at the start of his days at Wizcore. It might have even been the start yeah. of of Wizcore. Yeah, you can't get a better ambassador for the industry than Willie. Yeah, so it was it was interesting because I you know I didn't know trail building was really much of a trade outside of like my history is mountain biking, you know, and I've been a mountain biker for probably close to 30 years now. That was my avenue of trail. So it was, it was, I don't know if he remembers us meeting then he probably doesn't because he was, he probably met a bunch of people that day, but it was just, it was cool to see, I guess is where I was going with that. Yeah. It, it's exciting stuff. If you haven't, you know, the first time I remember very clearly the first day I ever saw a grip hoist, you know, and watched the way it worked. And that's, I was like, yep, I will buy one of those one day. <laughs> They're pretty great. Staying on that stuff, let's talk about your company, OBP Trailworks, and the type of work you do. I've I've often associated the New England region specifically with being artisans in the in the craft of timber framing and rock work and all that stuff. And that is really an area that you guys dive into, but you also dive into really remote work, you know, remote reconstruction as you call it, which is really good. And then Beyond that, we're going to get into the accessible side of things too. Yeah, we kind of, I mean, I, rock work is, is one of my, my biggest passions. And so I, I love it. I grew up rebuilding the stone walls and stone fences around, you know, and I think there is a very strong history of it um, in, in the New England area, Northern New England area. Well, all of New England, actually. So that's the stuff I, I made me so excited about trail work. And I thought that's what I want to do for the rest of my life, you know? And, and so the, I still love those projects. I take them on whenever I can. We pretty much every year have project in the White Mountains or a couple um, where if it's if it's wilderness based work, you know, we're just using um, rigging and and carbide hammers and chisels and shaping stuff. If it's in non wilderness, we're often bringing up schlepping up generators and rock drills and that sort of thing, uh, drilling and splitting. Um, but but doing like highly technical rock work up in up in the mountains. I love it. Unfortunately, where I am in life now, I don't get to do that so much anymore. So that that work is being carried on by the folks who work for OBP. Um, I don't get to do it personally very much anymore. Um, I've got a, a four-year-old daughter at home and I try to be home more, more frequently. Um, so I can't live in my tent on the side of a mountain day uh, week after week anymore, unfortunately. But it's a big part of what we do. And... We're also starting to bring in some of the we're seeing finally is such a strong tradition, uh, you know, 200 plus years old, you know, um, in the Northeast, the tradition of stone working on trails. I mean, I've had an opportunity to work on Crawford Path, which which is the oldest continually maintained and used hiking trail um, in the U.S. And there's some great rock work on that trail, but also it crosses through subalpine, very fragile subalpine environments. And the amount of use has just skyrocketed. It's been pushing the carrying capacity of that trail for decades. Um, so there's certain techniques that have been used for many years uh, to rebuild um, trails like that. But we're finally starting to even like revisit some of that stuff and build double wide steps, um, try to reconstruct these trails instead of just it's a lot of it's in tread work. We can't really realign because the trails of the Northeast go straight up fall line. and the we don't really have the ability to realign most of them because of boundary issues and because there are so many trails in a concentrated area that you'd just be creating so many more trail junctions and just the bureaucracy of of adding and relocating and realigning trails on federal lands uh 
in the whites is, is a challenge. So we're basically doing in-tread work, but the tread has gotten so much wider. We're able to actually do in-tread work now and build double, triple wide steps that actually build passing lanes so that the trails are better equipped for the carrying capacity or, or increase the carrying capacity of the trail. So they're better equipped to handle the volume of traffic that they see. So that's kind of some really nice stuff that's happening. There's a big initiative on following waters trail and, and um, old bridle path over the next five years that we've been involved with. That's um, going to help rebuild that section going up to the Franconia loops up to Mount Washington. It's really beautiful uh, in the, in the presidential range of the, the whites. So we've got that end of it. But then we also do, I'm super passionate with my business about um, accessible trails and they're not that fun to build. Building struck staircases is brutal. <laughs> and it's like with the bugs and the rain and the mud, like it, it can be uh, definitely labor intensive, but accessible trails are just kind of grueling and they, they're, they're not super exciting, but there's an art and a subtlety to constructing them well that is often underestimated. It's it's really easy to to throw gravel on the ground. It's really much more challenging to artfully, naturalistically incorporate a wide gravel trail into the landscape so that it's it drains really really well. The tread doesn't migrate um, or erode, and it's still it's still a nice experience. And I think the subtlety of constructing trails like that with actually like how difficult it actually is to do really, really well is something that is pushing me forward now as I get older and I need to sit at a machine more than roll rocks uphill all day. But more than the construction process, it's what they do for our communities. Accessible trails to me are the future of getting people out, linking our communities together access it's the multi-generational trail where you get kids who are learning how to ride their bikes and having their grandparents be able to get out there i have multiple people in my family with mobility impairments and they'll check out my accessible trails but they're not checking out my rock staircases and um you know as a lot of us trails professionals get older and we see you know our parents getting older like that's the inclusive trail of the future in my mind I love bike park in every community. I think accessible trails, I think bike parks should be on the heels of the accessible trails. I think it should be accessible trails, linking neighborhoods, safe routes to schools. And it's just, you can, people amble along on accessible trails. They're great for, for story walks, you know, or for interpretive signage, for, for telling the spirit of a place, the sense of a location. People have a tendency to stop and read and look and take in information on an accessible trail in a way that they don't on more remote trails. And so it, I really, I, I love them. We have one in our community. It connects actually my daughter's elementary school to an assisted living facility with a really inclusive park in the mix as well. Yeah, and there's a story walk and there's interpretive stuff, you know, and it's, it, it is truly multi-generational. It is a pretty awesome thing to see. I mean, I, I understood it and saw it in my mind before it was built and when it was being presented and understood what it was going to be. But a lot of people, I don't think, did really understand what it was going to be until they actually were able to participate in what it does. And that's, yeah. those are those light bulb moments in communities that like, oh yeah, we 
we do need more of this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we need more bike parks too, but like, I, I personally, the angle that I'm taking, oh, there's plenty of people taking the bike park angle, which I love. But uh, but yeah, I'm pushing the accessible trails and communities as, as much as I can. If done right, they're legitimate safe routes to school. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have vehicles. Yeah. As much as we are a car dependent society, like this is a great way to become less car dependent at a lower cost, 100%. a much lower cost. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. And then it provides almost, I mean, depending on where you live, almost year round usability, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In my area, there's people uh, snowshoeing, walking and skiing on, on the trails in our neighborhood that are wide enough to do and accommodate that. And if you could put a bike park at one on, that'd be sweet too. I did have to laugh there early on. Like <laughs> we're not talking mountain bikes in this, but you had to throw out the GT Caracorum that you drove from Carleton <laughs> College back to Maine through Canada. In the first six minutes of the conversation. I, I mean, I've spent some time on a bike, you know, I'm not anti-bike in any sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I, th- I thought that was in my mind. I chuckled. I'm like, huh, we are going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that bike's still hanging in my basement. I can't get rid of it. You should get rid of it. It's classic. Yeah. Now. Yeah. It's been brought up more than once as like guess first mountain bike. Oh, really? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I took mine and I, uh, because I was so scared someone was going to uh, steal it in college. They had this fancy paint job. I took all the stuff off of it, sandblasted it, and uh, painted it like matte shit brown. And then put it all back together so that it just looked like a crappy bike. And then I didn't have to worry about locking it up on, on my college campus. Well, let's go into locations. You kind of got into locations a little bit. You talked about White Mountains, but there's a location. And we've also talked about how you've like literally traveled the country. But there's a location outside of this country that you've been having quite a big impact on recently in the last few years, I should say. And that's the Patagonia region of Argentina. Let's talk about yes. how that work came to be, the type of work you're doing, and, and really what, what that means. Yeah, I've been, I spent the last, well, except for one year during COVID where I couldn't get down there, but a couple of my employees did manage to get down there. So we've had a presence down there every year. For the last seven years, I think I've gone down there nine times now, seven, six years, something like that. And it started, so it started in, in 2017. So you can do the math from there. I got a call from uh, a guy named Gilbert Butler, um, who's a philanthropist based out of New York, but does stuff, you know, across the US um, and in South America, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay. And I, we had consulted on some other things. He's also doing a lot of stuff in Maine. I work for him in Lubeck, um, which is the easternmost point in the United States a lot, um, as well as stuff in Millinocket. There's some great stuff happening in Millinocket right now, as I'm sure you're aware. And you've had some other folks talking about it recently on your podcast. Uh, so he also does some stuff in Millinocket. But so he calls me and he's like, <laughs> he's like, Jed, I'm trying to build trails in this national park. In Argentina, it's the most remote national park. It's the first national park in Argentina. It's the most remote uh, with the least amount of infrastructure. I hired a trail crew. They're failing miserably. And so I just fired them all. And we need to get some trails built. But then I hired a group of mountain guides from Bariloche, which is a town 12 hours to the north that has a very big industry behind mountain guiding and skiing and climbing. And he said, I hired them to build a, a backcountry hut because I want to build backcountry huts back there too. And they did a great job. So they're my new trail crew, but they've never built trails before. 
can you get down there next week and teach them how to build trails? And I was getting ready to go to the trail PTBA trails conference in Bend, Oregon that happened in 2017. I was like, well, I kind of got plans next week, but I could be down there in like two and a half weeks. He's like, okay, do it. And so he also contacted another PTBA member company who was supposed to go down there also. And, and some, some things happened, unforeseen things happened with them. So they weren't able to make it. So basically like I was the guy who showed up and, uh, by and large, that's what it takes is <laughs> just showing up and doing what you say you're going to do and everything else will follow. I met these mountain guides and, you know, it takes, took 50 hours to get there. And then I, I got there after midnight, you know, slept out under the stars and the next, next morning. They're like, yeah, let, come meet the crew. I'm like, okay, throw on my backpack. Like you might want to grab a sleeping bag and a tent. I was like, oh, okay. And hike, you know, seven, eight miles into them. Ended up being there for a week. I didn't realize I wasn't coming back. Like I was just going to be with this trail crew out in the woods and put on basically like an SCA work skills, you know, not SCA, but like cater to work skills, progressive learning for a week with those guys. And the mountain guides were very, very well equipped to become amazing trail builders, you know, because they, they loved being outside, strong, rugged. Most of them had good English because they're, they're leading folks all across, you know, the globe who come to Bariloche to, to hike and climb and ski. And so we ended that season, which is, we're in the end of the season. It was snowing on us on a high note. And so then made a plan to, okay, let's have a very ambitious plan to build infrastructure in this existing national park. So in two short seasons, the build seasons are about four months long. Then over the next two seasons, we ended up building, designing, and I get to be the person that to basically run around the backcountry and design where these trails are going to go on the landscape. Total blank canvas, huge park. And then they were like literally cut the trail behind us. We did almost a hundred kilometers in two seasons of all hand-built trail. 10 huts were constructed in various locations, three campgrounds with, with tent pads, and I think 12 latrines. In basically like, you know, eight months of, of building. And there was a basically put infrastructure into this national park. Um, we learned a lot in that process and very ambitious timeline and construction schedule. Everything had to be done before the administration changed in Argentina because the folks at the highest levels of the national parks are uh, appointed by the president. So if the president changes, those positions change. So we had all the right players in place to make it work. And then that sort of started it off. And uh, since then, there's been numerous other projects happening down there. And it looks like they hopefully will continue. We did some, there were some really cool things done on that first project that every national park was invited to send some of their rangers out to our crews where they had to live and work with us for three weeks in the backcountry and learn concepts of sustainable trail design and construction and their all their expenses would be paid for so that they can go back to their own national parks and start saying hey we should these these are some of these concepts like we got to start this these are greater reversals this this is you know contour trail building this is the clinometer and this is how to use it and start bringing this idea of sustainable trail design to all of the national parks and it's an area a region of the world where there wasn't a lot 
of knowledge surrounding good trail design, but they were so ready to hear it. And because of that, there's just been so much excitement generated. And uh, we've been able to see that fire get lit um, in all of these different regions around Patagonia where there's all these other smaller, potentially larger trail projects happening. It's pretty awesome. I ran into Willie at, we were at our local trail club gala, actually. And I think he had just gotten back. This would have been spring of 2019. So it would have been your winter of... 2018 rolling into 2019, which sounds like that may have been your first full season down there. Second. I think Willie came down the second season. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 When he said, he's like, oh yeah, I just came back from Argentina, Patagonia region. I'm like, really? What's going on down there? That's that's a (laughs) long ways away from the upper Midwest and the, the Great Lakes, we'll say. Yep. It definitely is. But it's, yeah. It was such a cool project. It was so great to have Willie down there. Willie's been instrumental. He actually spent more time on this newer project this past season than I than I was able to. He went down with his whole family, his kids and his wife. We all, you know, he's one of the people I enjoy working with the most. And also just sort of bringing this conversation back to those traditional skills. I found myself in a weird situation because it's it was my job to like get the U.S. team together. So we were, we were designing the trails. And we're overseeing construction. We're sending crew leaders down for local folks to teach local people how to build and live in these environment where there's no houses. We're living in tents. You know, it's it's pretty remote, and it's it's all handwork. There's no machines involved anywhere. And I started going through the list, and there weren't that many professional trail builders with companies who have experience doing that. You know, one of my first calls was Christine Bylan of Interior Trails, who was on your show, and and uh, and her partner Gabe, they came down. It's great. Willie was one of my first calls. He couldn't make it down the first year. Aaron Amadon from uh, Town 4 Trail Services, you know, Peter Jensen, Jerry Wilbur sent somebody down from his his crew, but the list was relatively short of folks that could hit all of those difficult criteria of working with a challenging group dynamic, living in a tent, not using any machines, doing the design work and the construction work and the crew oversight. And it just, again, brought it home how quickly this industry is changing and some of those skills are, are, are falling by the wayside or they're, you know, 30 years ago to pull a team from the U.S. down to do that same job, I think would have, we would have had a much wider applicant pool. Yeah. And one of the things I was going to touch on with this, which you kind of alluded to is the the language barrier, but it sounded like, it sounds like the language barrier wasn't as much of an issue as it potentially could have been with, with the mountain guides already guiding people that are probably coming from also all different parts of the world legitimately. Yeah. It, that was the first project, the first major project. The second major project we've been working on now for four years, the language barrier is a little bit more prevalent because we're no longer using the uh, mountain guides as the primary workforce. We're trying to get as many local people involved and trying to create avenues for them to, we're working in a park that's not a national park yet, and to try, to try to create avenues for long-term positions for them. And so we're trying to hire as locally as we can. That That's proven to be challenging as well. So there is definitely a language, a language barrier. It's one of the many issues that we're, that we work to overcome. And so far we found some pretty good, pretty good workarounds. And fortunately I've got some folks on my team who are pretty good with Spanish and, and that's helpful too. Other issues 
I could potentially see, and and maybe this wasn't an issue, but did you have, you have any wildlife stories? Uh, I wish we had great wildlife stories. It's a pretty austere environment. I mean, you, you, see, you see pumas all, you know, around, they're lurking, you know, no major wildlife encounters that are like crazy stories, you know, but the wind is what's, it's like, it's, it's impossible to tell an exciting story about the wind that has any, that gives any sort of feeling of what it's like to be down there, but it is absolutely relentless at times. And uh, we had all steel tool trailers, like old, like horse trailers, wide base trailers full of hammers, you know, blow over in the wind. You know, you're working, you're walking down a trail and all of a sudden you just get spun backwards. You know, the wind is just blowing you around and you're in that environment all the time, like, you know, sleeping in tents and, and uh, it's kind of like a, kind of like being on an expedition day in and day out. Um, so that's, that's probably one of the more exciting elements and just the overall remoteness of some of the locations and the lack of free trade, like everything you have there is made in Argentina. It's not coming over the border pretty much. Anything that we use, like every single pin flag we, we put on the ground, we have to carry down there in our duffel bags. You know, we, we managed to get a few rogue hoes down there, but we're working on a very limited equipments, you know, sources down there for sure. Did they have any type of local hand tools that would resemble a rogue hoe, a McLeod or a Pulaski? Totally. Until you use it for like five minutes and it resembles like a taco. But like, <laughs> you know, it, there's agricultural equipment. And so they actually have some like wide, you know, six inch wide hose with long handles. I was one guy on my crew, Patrick, I love him. He's really, really good at breaking handles. You know, he'll sometimes go through three of their handles in a day, pick like full on pickmatic handles because that's the quality of the, the wood down there. But uh, they do have some tools that work. Most everything's getting re-welded and, you know, reinforced in, in one way or another to do what we're doing with them. Sounds like another trade industry that needs to happen down there. It's true. Fortunately, because of the lack of free trade, it's people in, in Argentina are so inspiring because they're so gosh darn resourceful. You know, they make us look so soft in so many ways and it's humbling to be there, you know, which is great, but they can fix anything, you know? Um, and, uh, and so when they see a need they they like know how to modify their, their existing tools to become pretty good working trail tools. We also, I should, should just mention, we also, um, instituted last year a volunteer program from the US to go down there and and that's wrapping up literally <laughs> as we are talking this is their final day of work uh after three sessions so we've had about six people go down for six weeks three different times over the course of the year being facilitated by folks from my team Willie and Aaron Amadon and their last work day is today and uh, they'll be coming back, but we will be instituting that pro that program next year as well. So we're going to be looking for twenty or so U.S. volunteers to to go down to to Patagonia for the winter time between November and uh, early April, and get all your expenses paid to go down there and dig trail and learn some some cool stuff and meet some cool people. That's a good moment to talk about, like how somebody could actually learn or apply for that program and where we, where we could send somebody. Cause I could definitely link that type of information into the show notes for this. 
I'll, I'll make sure you have that information. Um, we're updating it from last year to this year, like literally now, like these these couple weeks. So I'm sure by the time this this podcast airs, we'll have uh, a website for folks to be able to click onto where they could uh, start that application process. It's basically right now. It's like it's like me and Willie and uh, and his wife Katie who are who are screening applicants and, and deciding who goes down. Nice. Well, if this airs yeah. prior, this is actually going to air pretty soon. If this airs prior to that. We'll right. definitely. Yeah, I'll get it. I'll get it. I'll get it to you. Yeah, I'll you get can it get it to, to me, or I can each. I could even reach out to Willie. He literally lives okay. like probably right four, four miles from me. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Let's move into the PTBA and yeah. kind of you know you've been president of the PTBA. The more and more I talk about this in this show, the more and more it's apparent that. Having the PTBA as a specific trade organization and the only specific trade organization for the trade of build, trail building, I believe in the world, for sure, obviously in, in the Americas, is important for, again, the knowledge share, but also vetting really good work. So we get really good work put on the landscape, which is probably the, one of the most important things. Well, you know, I think, again, those of us who are, are pretty involved with PTBA, it's, we, we do it because we, we believe in it. You know, uh, it's a, it's volunteer. The board positions are volunteers, both are, you know, but I think the role of, of PTBA is to, to help keep the, the threshold of competency across every element of trail that's being built, you know, high, as high as we can. And that's a, it's a big order with like a sort of the disparate insular communities of trail people that are sort of like sprouting up everywhere and and blowing up you know so the best way to do that is through communication so i see ptba's primary role is as as you know promoting discourses between professionals and and kind of trying to help break down that i don't want to call it silly or petty but that that competition right and safeguarding of practices that that is so prevalent, you know, that some people feel is protecting their best interest as a private contractor, but it's really in everybody's best interest to have the best trail on the ground possible, you know, and PTBA helps like this podcast is a great example of, of facilitating that discourse. You know, it's wonderful. Like we need, we need more Josh's out there doing this, but you know, I'm really inspired by my peers in PTBA. And I'm always learning from them, listening to what they're doing, hearing what Jerome Pallon's doing in, in Canada, the way he's he's grown his business, the directions he's taking it uh, is amazing. It's fascinating. It's moving so quickly, you know? And then, of course, the mountain bike stuff with folks like, you know, Rich and Mike, Steve from Imba. I mean, every... Uh, so many, so many players to name and, and what, what's happening in, in the Ozarks and in Virginia and elsewhere, you know, like it gives us a place at a time to talk about all that gives us the, the form and the venue, you know, what, what folks are doing with trail planning, uh, whether it's like, you know, Scott Lindenberger and Jeremy Wimpy or, uh, with their, with our whole trail design systems and bringing in all of these different companies together to get the best product possible in the shortest amount of time or, what John Altschuld's doing with drone technology in trail planning, like PTBA, for me, that's what it's about. It's about keeping up the competency as much as we can, 
But more, more than that, it's promoting that dialogue. And we want to keep up competency, but we don't want to be an enforcement agency. You know, that has to happen on occasion. We don't, nobody wants that. No, you know, we're looking to build up the industry and we want as many people to be involved as possible, you know, in, in terms of member benefits. You know, I think Jerome might have touched on this a little bit. We're working on increasing those, you know, uh, stuff like offering member companies, you know, sort of stock safety plans, getting this trail curriculums out. Uh, your, your discussion with Mariah Kigi was was wonderful working with her um, and, and the stuff she's doing. We're developing core competencies and trails and bringing that um, sort of to higher education formats putting out requests for proposals for projects, disseminating those, or having, you know, we've got member only webinars. We're working on stuff like insurance groupings. We do pro deals, but all that's it's, it's, it's happening, but it's tough to do with a small group of people. You know, it's unfortunately, it's a pretty small number of member companies that are working to try to improve the association for everybody else. We're all busy and we're doing it, you know, in the time we can sneak in here and there. Uh, but really, member companies get out what they put in. You know, the more that you interact with PTBA, the more you have other folks in PTBA interacting with you, and it becomes it, it sort of becomes a community in and of itself. And uh, and so, I don't know if that answers your question at all, but that's kind of um, a rambling response. It it does completely because you nailed it with the communication side of things. You know, I mean, trail building. You know, it's it's an interesting trade because it's it's an artisan trade, right? And so like everybody has, I'm going to say their own style. And there's many ways that we can get to an end product. But at the same time, again, going back to the, the knowledge sharing and then ultimately the end product that is both good for the user, good for the land, and good for the client, you know, because all those things are super important. You know, if you have a good client experience, you know, maybe that's a national park service or a local municipality or even a private entity, say, I guess the private stuff is more along the lines of the bike park stuff. But if you have a, if they have a good experience with a, with a trail building company, that only helps boost the industry as a whole, you know, and the same with, with everything else in terms of like that user experience. It was at one point, and this came to me, I don't know, almost 10 years ago now, but it's really become apparent that at one point trails were a means of transportation, right? And now they're still a means of transportation, but more increasingly a means of recreation. And so that individual trails can really paint a picture or tell a story to that user. And so to be able to do that in a really good way, that is also good for the landscape is super, super important to keep going. Well said. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you mentioned about the you know, private clients being more bike focused. I don't know if that's entirely true because there's a lot of small philanthropic organizations where you're basically dealing with a single person, right? And they're, if you make that person happy, they're going to, they're going to come back again. You know, you know, land trusts oftentimes are being, that's what a lot of, a lot of my clients here in, in Maine are, are land trusts. A lot of land trusts only have two or three full-time staff, you know, and so the relationships you build with an individual are the very same relationships you build with a very small organization. And they, they tend to sort of, you know, what you reap there is what you sow in both, in both instances. That's a, that's actually a really good point. There are, 
there are a lot of land trusts, whether it's whether the health, land is held, sometimes it's publicly conserved, but a lot of times it is privately conserved. And to be able to, you know, put a quality product down for whatever their user experience is, is also super important, but also keeping that relationship going. It's all, I mean, it's communication and relationships are go such a long ways, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's get a little bit more personal on your end. Like, what are the things you look for if you're going to travel? Like, what are the things you look for in a good in a good trail community? Like the amenities or it, it really you could go anywhere. It's a good question. It's a question and I, I like knew to was ask coming everybody. because you ask everybody. I know. <laughs> and I hadn't given it as much thought as I probably should, but like I guess in a word, Mike, my, my answer is probably gonna be different than a lot of a lot of folks on your program. Cause I feel like for me it's like in a word would be like inclusion or accessibility. And I, I, I guess connectivity also, they sort of all play together. So that's, that's three words. Sorry. But like, I guess if there's those three, if it's, you know, like the, the connectivity piece we discussed, right? Like I, one of the reasons why I love accessible trails, they, you know, you step out your door uh, and you can get somewhere, you know, that's what I like to see. Maybe not in a, in a destination trails community, but in a community that I want to live in that has trails. And I guess that's a, that's maybe my response to this question is more than a, a, a community, you know, a trails destination. Where I live, like I was talking about, the land trusts buy up like, or conserve, you know, small little parcels all over the place. And you people jump in their Subaru Outback and they drive a few miles and they hop out on this tiny little, you know, undersized parking lot trailhead. And they walk 30, 45 minutes, go back to their, their on trails that are usually very limited amount of effort put into their designer construction. And then they hop back into their car and they, and they drive home or they drive to another one. And that's great. It's nice, you know, but it's not breaking down. It's, it's not allowing people to get from one place to another on trails. It's not providing the safe access routes to schools. You know, it's not a nice place for kids to ride their bikes. So it's, it's lacking a little bit in the, or there's room for growth, I should say, you know, so making those a little bit more accessible as we've talked about sort of ad nauseum already at this point, you know, but allowing people across the mobility spectrum to get out and be active, you know, the multi-generational folks, and then sort of the inclusion piece, I think is critical because it's, it's a topic that's being discussed more and more on trails, but in the trails communities and and certainly in the conservation and land trust communities and conservation core communities. But like, for example, this isn't a super positive example, but I was working on a trail project as a consultant for an accessible trail design in a city close to where I live um, with a landscape architecture firm. And it was going to be sort of this boggy area that nobody uses. We're going to build boardwalks across it. Everything's going to be accessible. And it's basically going to link these like five different neighborhoods. But a couple of them are definitely on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And there was all of this backlash from the community. And the, the, the project got tabled because people did, were said, oh, they're going to be out partying. There's going to, you know, it's going to cause damage and littering and kids out there, you know, getting into trouble. And I don't really want this, these, those folks rolling into my backyard, you know, and, and it's the exact opposite of what we need to work towards to get as many people out on trails as possible, to link as many different neighborhoods from every socioeconomic background, you know, and every culture coming into the U.S. to like say, hey, let's, wherever you're from, you ought to be able to walk to where you want to go to. 
and and walk from your place on a trail through my neighborhood onto another trail to get to where you're going. And I think that's the inclusion piece that, you know, it doesn't make a destination trail, doesn't necessarily make a trail community, but it makes the type of community that I gravitate towards wanting to be in. Man, I've heard that story so many times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a story that is, I'm going to say 99.9% not true ever. Right. Even in a lower socioeconomic setting, the odds of what people, the, the fear that people are trying to, it's, it's, it's an interesting tactic that people seem to take over and over and over again, because it seems like it's like the low hanging fruit tactic. You know, it's the easiest, yeah. easiest story they can come up with is the negative repercussions that could come from whatever change. And it could be like any change legitimately. Yeah. I don't I look at destination community, like for me, a, a good, des- a good destination community is actually one that is connected. Cause if I'm going to go yeah. somewhere, I want to park my vehicle and ride to ride. That's one of the things, that's one of the things I really appreciate a place about a place like Bentonville and that region and how they are connecting everything as much as they possibly can. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. I was there. And they're incorporating the same, that safe route to school in Bentonville that have kids have bike paths to their school from wherever they live. Like that is, that's the future, you know, that's what, that's what we, that's what, that's something to strive for. Correct. Yeah. And when I was there. I was there last week and this is going to go on to the inclusion and accessibility a little bit, you know, I, or maybe a lot of bit actually. I was there and I, I went mountain biking with Jeremy P. McGee, who I'm sure you're aware of. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. He was a keynote speaker at last year's PTBA conference in Benton. Super inspiring. Yeah. And so him and I, him and I met in person for the first time at that conference and immediately hit it off. We've missed each other. I always try to reach out to him when I'm down there and, and he splits his time between there and in Southern California, but then also has some time on the road because a lot of his work centers around accessibility. And I'm going to say it's more high-end accessibility because he's, he's a higher-end user uh, in terms of yeah. trail stuff. But what he's doing in that, in that arena is pretty incredible. And to be able to ride behind him and see like physically what he's, a- what he's able to do. And most of the issues that he comes across with what he's trying to do for accessibility are what he calls tree gates, which is you know two trees that are just a couple inches too close together. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't even really change the character of the trail for other users to get that in to, you know, to work around that tree gate. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe it's a rock or whatever, like something that, you know, and he's even working, like he's even made some modifications to his AMTB where he's now got the axles of the front wheel a little bit narrower so he can, so he can skirt thing through things a little bit easier and they don't get hung up. Yeah. It's interesting. And it really points to how it's all changing too, because I mean, adaptive mountain bikes are not, or are only very, very recently coming into the conversation as being a factor in design considerations before a trail goes goes on the ground or a retrofit after the trails on the ground. And that was one of the things that really opened my eyes in, in Bentonville, both the Jeremy and um, I'm, I'm sorry. Now uh, probably Quinn speaker. Brett. Yes. Yeah. When, when she spoke and learning of like, oh, wow, these are, these are guiding design principles that we all need to be thinking about a little bit more. And so it's just another, another way that we're just constantly evolving the way we address trails based on what we're seeing with evolving trends in the recreation field, you know, adaptive mountain bikes, they're, 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 they're coming you know, everywhere. And we need to accommodate 
those experiences better than we have been. Yeah. And, and this has been brought up quite a bit, but the, the advent of e-bikes, you know, cause mm-hmm. Jeremy's, Jeremy's setup is kind of a hybrid. It's e- it's an e-bike hybrid setup, essentially, you know, he's, he's pedal assist. He's not full power. Yep. He's pedal assist. Yeah. But the fact that, you know, e-bike pedal assist is like opened up so much more. Like he would rather climb to the top of a trail to go down something. You know, he spent, he's spent a lot of time out West, uh, a fair amount of years in Mammoth Mountain in that Mammoth Lakes mm-hmm. region, you know? And so lift access for him was a thing, but when he could start hand cranking up stuff with the power assist that you get from an e-bike motor, you know, that just changed that whole dynamic even more for him to, to be able to be in nature the whole way up and the whole way yeah. down or what, or across or whatever the experience is that you're looking for. Right. And, and yeah, exactly. It opens up that experience. I mean, climbing's fun, honestly. I mean, it's like masochistic kind of fun, the same way building trails is a masochistic kind of fun, but you know, if you like building trails, you probably like going uphill, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you wanted to, to slide in here before we wrap this one up? I mean, so much more we could discuss, but um, no, I really have appreciated the conversation, Josh. It's been nice to like revisit some of those old memories. That's an important part of this type of format. You know, I'm going to say with long form media and podcasting is that you get, you get to actually share the details of, of your experiences and people listen. Like it's not 10 second TikTok clips. Like people actually listen to super long interviews and get a lot out of it. I hope they get a little something out of this one at least. Yeah. I've, I've enjoyed it though. Well, where can people find OBP Trailworks? We'll put the link for in the show notes, but you're on, you're on the internet. I'm, I'm on the outskirts, the shadows of the internet. Yeah. I'm not very good at social media. I mean, we've been working in Patagonia uh, this whole season. I think I've only like reposted things that other people have tagged me and I haven't even done my own, my own host on Instagram or Facebook about our, our work. Um, so I'm, we are, we're there, we're on Facebook, we're on, we're on Instagram, uh, um, under OBP Trailworks, Facebook's facebook.com backslash trailwork. We got, I did, did get ahead of the game on that one. And yeah, we've got a website, um, that's, that's updated every now and again, OBP trailworks.com. But yeah, I'm, you know, not going to be as, uh, as prevalent in the social media, um, realm as, as others, but, uh, it's just not as much of a priority for me. We have a bandwidth that's only so wide, right? Yeah. And getting exactly. work done is probably <laughs> is the priority. Yeah. Well, Jed, I really appreciate this conversation today and in getting your stories out, especially about the SCA and some of the historical perspective of, you know, where trail building was and where it's going. So I really appreciate that. And thank you very much. Absolutely. It's been awesome. I appreciate it, Josh. Thanks for doing everything you do. It's, it's huge. Like it's, it's what I live for the discussions, you know? And so, so thank you for that. Well, thank you. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. If you listen to trail effect on Apple podcast or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating or review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening.